The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, even as earthen pots are broken in pieces, and even as I myself received authority from my Father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim. I serve here at Christ Press as a scholar in residence, and it's always a great delight to open the Word of God and to reflect and indeed wrestle with the meaning and the implications for us. If you're paying any attention to today's text that was just read, you can see what an easy text it is for us to deal with. (laughs) Just lightweight stuff about food, sex, and the city of God. Um, So I would like to ask you for a favor. Um, On your phones or in front of you as an actual copy of the text, Open that up, and we'll actually study that pretty much verse by verse. And as Cami Bethea said, that this is a sort of a PG-level uh, sermon. I don't know what that means anymore because I watch PG movies, and I was like, ooh, that would be PG-13, and watch some things like PG-13, and that would be rated R 20 years ago. I'll probably put this around, along PG-13. So with that in mind, especially for the... Uh, sisters and brothers in middle school and high school. Um, 
bear with me, and that may actually be of some benefit to you as well, as well as our older sisters and brothers. Uh, to that end, let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts. Help us to be receptive to what you have to teach us. From this letter that was written some 2,000 years ago to a church that we virtually know nothing about, and even the greater Herculean task of applying this to our context in 21st century North America, saturated with many misguided and misdirected sexual endeavors and enterprises, and also things that are basically misdirected in our sense of identity as human beings. Guide us, lead us, and help us to know that you're the one who put down your body and blood as a sacrifice for our life journey. May you exalt yourself today. May you teach us who you are and whose we are. In your name, amen. So we come to this letter in the book of Revelation uh, to a church, to the church in the city of Thyatira. Where is the head? And what is the significance of this city? So I'm quite, I'm pretty sure that when you're planning, when you're writing down your bucket list of the cities you like to visit before you die, I'm sure Thyatira will be in the nine, number nine spot or something like that. Probably not. Where is it? It's in Turkey. If you were to fly to Istanbul, the capital of Turkey today, and travel almost due south for 240 miles, you arrive at this city called Akisar, formerly known as Thyatira. The book of Revelation ranks among the very top as one of the most challenging texts for interpretation, especially regarding its passages on prophecies. Prophecies as to when will they be fulfilled and how will that take place? What will Jesus' return and the so-called thousand-year reign of Christ look like? When will that occur? All of these things are fraught with challenges. And in the beginning part of this book, as we read earlier today, also known as Apocalypse, we find these seven letters, seven letters of Jesus. We're not sure if they were delivered as separate letters to these locations, whether Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia or Laodicea. We're not even sure that they actually got these letters or that they were emblematic and representative of the symptoms, struggles, and stories of early Christianity around the end of the first century. So friends, as we are listening to the sermon and engaging with God and seeking to learn more about God and ourselves, I want us to remember this one very important fact, and that is that unless we understand the sort of mode of life for these early Christians, namely the real prevalent presence of suffering and persecution and the really great minority status, that they are often the objects of ridicule, misunderstanding, and mistreatment. If we don't understand that, because we're not likely to experience that in our life day to day, then we're at this great danger of misinterpreting what this letter and what the entire Bible, indeed the New Testament, has to teach us. Because the times of Jesus, as we will see, was not an easy time for the people of God the people of Israel, as well as the early Christians. And we need to understand that even though, even though I understand that living in North America, living in Nashville as a Christian, as Christians means that it's not that hard, although perhaps increasingly 
our sense of self, our, sense, our perspective on sexuality, our perspective on food and drinks, maybe at points of great challenge and disagreement with the rest of our culture. So I do think that as we go through our text together, we might glean more insights than, than what we might initially think as possible. So I think we need to understand a few things about the church in Thyatira and the city and the historical context. Like, what were they like? What were some of the issues surrounding the city of Thyatira, especially for these new group of Christians as you are finding their new identity in God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ? So once again, the city of Thyatira is in modern-day Akisar. Again, a city that you probably had not heard of until today. Uh, 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, one of the letters that was written to, in fact, the letter just before the th church in Thyatira is a letter written to the city of Pergamum. Again, we don't know where that is. At least with, you know, the church in Smyrna, we can probably travel to it about, I don't know, 20 miles from here, and it's a city called Smyrna. That's not the Smyrna that we're talking about in the book of Revelation, but at least in terms of the, the, the word itself, or the city of Philadelphia, not in Pennsylvania perhaps, but we have some notion, though erroneous, but okay, we know Smyrna, we know Philadelphia, we know Ephesus, but what is the city in Thyatira? So one thing we need to understand about the city of Thyatira is the great presence of labor unions or trade guilds. And we'll have more to say about that in just a few minutes. So I don't know if you know much about labor unions or trade guilds. Maybe some of us might have belonged to it. You know, a kind of a union of, let's say, medical doctors or teachers or electricians or plumbers, right? And belonging to these uh, unions or for students in college, let's say, belonging to a fraternity or sorority. So there is a real kind of powerful dynamic of insiders and outsiders. Are you in or are you out? And as we will study this text clearly, one thing you will see is a powerful, powerful pressure that was exerted upon these new Christians about their identity as belonging to, whether it is trade guilds or something bigger than that. So to, whose, um, to whom do I express my ultimate allegiance? To whom do I owe my life identity? So there are trade unions or you know, these uh, guilds, such as Potter's Union, Taylor's Union, Leather Workers Union in this city of Thyatira. Moreover, there are these cobblers unions, shoemakers, linen workers, bakers, silver and copper smiths, and wool merchants union. And you get the picture. So for whatever reason, this city, though not a prosperous or prominent city in the Roman Empire, but one thing they did have was a really, really a, a preponderant majority of the city's industry was predicated on and built upon the presence of these guilds. You with me? So it was very important for people working in these jobs to belong to these guilds or unions because they safeguarded uh, your existence and also they protected and also helped you to prosper as you found yourself in this industry. Okay? Moreover, to uh, best understand this kind of context of early Christianity, New Testament Christianity, it is important to understand the sort of a triangulating relationship between Roman Empire, Judaism, and Christianity. So Christianity as Romans saw them. There's a very important book by a professor at um, UVA uh, called Christianity as the Romans saw them. And it's a very important book that sheds light on how the Roman majority viewed, as, viewed this minority religion 
called Christians, and we'll look at what that meant. And Judaism. So Judaism and Christianity had a very interesting and contested relationship. You know, as, Christian, as Jesus was certainly the Jew of the Jews, he never said, I'm actually starting something off from Judaism. He, in fact, saw his identity as a fulfillment of all the Torah and all the promises, and that's exactly the way that the Apostle Paul and other early Christians saw their identity. Nonetheless, there was a lot of contested relationship between Judaism and Christianity. For one, Judaism, in the eyes of Romans, was actually a sanctioned religion, a protected religion, whereas Christianity was seen as a weird corruption or new invention that did not sit well with the very people um, of the Roman Empire. For example, uh, early Christians, perhaps you knew, were called uh, cannibals. Did you know that? In the eyes of the Romans, to hear about eating the body of Jesus, drinking the blood of Christ, seemed absolutely weird. You know what I mean? Like, how do you eat another person's body and drink someone else's? Because if you don't have an exalted notion of who Jesus is, that sounds kind of cannibalistic. Eating somebody's flesh, drinking somebody's blood. I became a Christian as a junior in college, right? And one of the meetings that I went to had this uh, a speaker who asked the audience this question, and that I found absolutely weird. He asked the audience, are you covered in the blood of Jesus? I thought that was a horrifying thing. Like, what do you mean? Am I, am I blood all over me? But then what he was communicating, it was sort of a Christianese, that there was insider language that he understood, but I as an outsider was like, what is he talking about? So similar to the eyes of the Romans, the practice of the Eucharist that we are going to do after the sermon was a weird thing. The other thing was that they actually looked at these Christians as sexually promiscuous. How could that be? Well, because in early Christianity, they were calling one another brothers and sisters. So if you call one another brother and sister, that means you have a very strange family dynamic. And then they thought that they were sexually promiscuous, incestuous. Therefore, there was a lot of misunderstanding and indeed mistreatment of early Christians in the eyes of the Roman Empire. So let's build on a little bit further. There was actually a Roman historian who also was a senator in the Roman Empire named Tacitus, T-A-C-I-T-U-S. He actually wrote this history of the Roman Empire called the Annals, written around 116 A.D., and this is what he had to say about Christ and how the treatment toward Christians, especially during the reign of Emperor Nero, um, began to actually turn the public perspective on the Christians. Let's have a listen. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. So this is an extra-biblical affirmation or attestation of name Jesus and the person who, as who he was. And they'll repress this destructive superstition, he calls it, erupted again, not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. So we know that for Tacitus, his perspective on the city of Rome is where all the strange things and all the crazy things will find their destination in the city of Rome. And he called Christianity destructive superstition. Therefore, he continues, first those were, and this is now talking about the Nero's persecution of Christianity because of the great fire of Rome and Nero blame, uh, placed the blame on these Christians. These, you know, terrible people, these bastards, they actually kind of brought this evil upon us. And so this is what um, a non-Christian 
uh, named Tacitus writes about this story. Therefore, first those who were seized by the Roman guards who admitted their faith, meaning I believe in Christ, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude of followers of Christ were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for the hatred of the human race. Hatred of the human race, what does that mean? Because these Christians would say, my ultimate allegiance is not to the empire or the emperor, but to Jesus Christ. So that was seen as a hater of humanity. And perishing, they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs as having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Listen to the morbid and chilling treatment that early Christians endured. Nero gave his own gardens for the spectacle and performed a circus game in the habit of a charioteer mixing with the plebes or driving about the race course. Even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people begin to have compassion on and take pity on these Christian sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man. So there is a slight turning of public you know, interactions with and attitude toward the early Christians. According to this Roman historian, he says, you know what? Many in the Roman Empire came to realize that, man, what are we doing to these people? We're setting them aflame. We're giving them to dogs. We're having them uh, run the race course with other chariots. And this is probably not the best thing we could be doing. So we notice that this is the, precisely the context of the writing of the New Testament, writing to the church in Thyatira. And I think that'll help us to get to a, perhaps a better situated understanding. In case you thought that suffering on Christians was a thing that was uh, common for pre-Constantinian context, that is not the, that's not true. I was speaking at a conference in Grand Rapids just earlier last week at Calvin College, and one of the things that I learned about was that many countries, even today, like Nigeria, for example, you know, some of the Christians are persecuted for their faith. So, uh, Christians in, you know, in Syria and other places, there are Christians today in August 2018 for whom and for their life story, what the early Christians embraced was very, very a similar and present-day reality. So it really does um, encourage us to expand our horizons to pray for our sisters and brothers scattered throughout this world here and now. So um, one thing we do know is that this strange cult began to sweep through the Roman Empire. And so many in the Roman Empire are beginning to notice and saying, holy crap, we need to do something about this. And there is a lot of layers upon layers of misunderstanding that was there. So on to today's text then. Let's look at today's text as it is given to us. In verse 18, we see the identity of Jesus as the, the words of the Son of God. So Son of God, so this is a very kind of important language that equates himself with God. And so he kind of kicks it up a notch as it were and says, you know what, what I'm about to tell you is very significant because the one who's telling you these things is none other than the Son of God. So what does he say? He says in verse 19, I know your works. 
I know your love and faith and service and patient endurance. So he actually praises this Thyatiran church, saying that you're doing some really wonderful things. Your love has actually gotten bigger and better and deeper than when you first began, as opposed to this very well-known church in Ephesus about whom Jesus says, you know what, you're doing all of these great things, you hold to great doctrine, but you have forgotten and you have lost your first love. But about this church in Thyatira, quite the opposite. He says, you know what, your love for me has gotten greater and deeper. And all of these things, and then further in that same verse, and that your latter works exceed the first. So there's a real kind of improvement in their understanding of God and, and their understanding of self. And Jesus certainly takes the time to praise that congregation for what they have. But also, this is what we see in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And this is a, let's face it, um, um, this will never make it to the top 10 list of texts that I want to preach if I were to te pick any text in the Bible to talk about. And you can see why that is. And yet, I think, you know, one of the things that would actually, uh, for me as a, a speaker or preacher, is I need to tackle texts like this because it forces me to speak into our, the present reality of first century Christianity in Thyatira, as well as reflecting on the kind of challenges and, and the empowerment that we need in the 21st century context. So we need to understand something about Jezebel. Who is this person? And what was she teaching? And how is that actually related to all of these things that I mentioned earlier about labor unions and trade guilds? And how was professions? And how is food and drink and sexuality all mingled together as was obviously manifesting itself in the church in Thyatira? So we come to this interpreted challenge and a problem. So about this woman Jezebel, where else have we seen this? We find her in the what? The Old Testament. We find her that she was actually a queen. She was actually married to King Ahab. She was actually a very powerful woman who had the heart and could tug, tug away at the heart of King Ahab so that she basically governed according to her own desires. She was not a Jewess. She was not a Jewish person. And she brought with her the kind of perspectives that were basically diametrically opposed to the will of Yahweh. And so she was seen as a, as a representative or symbolic figure that stood for everything that was against God in the Old Testament. So we're, we're pretty sure that there was not a person actually named Thy, uh, Jezebel as much as someone who was in the spirit of Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. And what was her message? She was basically encouraging or condoning sexual immorality and eating foods sacrificed to idols. So about this Jezebel, we find her in 1 Kings chapters 16 through 21 and 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. She was a powerful name, and she was also a, a terrifying resonance and an objectionable name. You don't normally name your daughter Jezebel. So what Jezebel was doing, and she was obviously a prominent leader in this church, in, in this church that loved the Lord with their heart, mind, and strength, 
in this church that actually was doing great work in terms of following God in faith and service and patient endurance under much misunderstanding and mistreatment. But there's something, there's one thing that was missing, and that was kind of its relationship with the pressures and the presence of the cultural mores, what the culture was saying about how to be in your sexuality and your uh, terms of eating and drinking and how that all relates with God of the Bible, God of Jesus Christ. So here's one very important thing to remember. There's a New Testament scholar named William Barclay, and this is what he said. He said, no merchant or trader in the city of Thyatira could hope to prosper or make money unless he was a member of this trade guild. So, I mean, some of us moms and dads who work, and some of us who work in that world, wherever they may be, that belonging to and receiving the approval of whatever that kind of organization, right? If you're an attorney, I suppose you, you have to get some kind of, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I get that there needs to be some kind of, um, you know, approval from, said the bar, the state bar, whatever it is. You need that. You need that sort of a sanctioning organization to say you're legit. So imagine that you're belonging to that trade organization, trade guild, meant that you really have to look yourself in the eyeballs and say, you know what, am I actually, this belonging to this organization means I might have to compromise some of my new convictions about my faith. How many of you are converted at a later age, past age 15 to Christianity? Okay, me, all right. So I was, I became a Christian at age 21. My perspective on eating and drinking and having sex changed dramatically as a result of my, my, my own Christian conversion. Basically, before I was a Christian, my view on sexuality was, okay, um, live and let live. I'm sort of a libertarian. Like, don't, like, okay, you can do whatever you want, uh, just leave me alone. Right? So often I think my sexuality, along with many of my friends in college, our perspective, collectively speaking, was that Sexuality was a matter of conquest, right? But never in, in terms of looking at it as a kind of a deepening my communion to see God through my sexual activity. Nothing could be weirder than that. <laughs> Yet at the same time, after I came to know Jesus, that one of the most wonderful things and strangest things about Christianity was that it was connecting my interhuman communion through sexual act and connecting that with my communion with God. If you're ever in doubt, pick up the Old Testament book called Song of Songs, and you read the expressions, you're like, whoa, this is talking about woman's breast. And so, many in the medieval Christianity said, you know what, this cannot actually be allowed to be interpreted as something about human sexuality, so this is actually going to be about the love that Jesus has for the church. Because they were afraid that this connecting it to such a PG-13 or rated R level would make all kinds of mysterious kind of interpretations about human sexuality. But what I come to realize, and many have seen, is that, you know what, it is not either or, but both end. It is actually, in that book, uh, Song of Songs, it is talking about human sexuality. It is talking about Solomon and his beloved, and how they were really finding their deep joy through that expression of human sexuality in their intercourse. And at the same time, it was elevating them to see that this is merely a, a sign and pointer to the greater joy you can and ought to have in your worship of the triune God. Therefore, it is both about human sexuality as well as sublimating that or connecting that with our deep intercourse with God. 
Yes, that's right. In the early modern context, so 16th and 17th century context, when you use the word, uh, when you use the, use the word intercourse, when you hear the word intercourse today, we automatically think of it as sexual intercourse. But some of the writers in, in this context would talk about the intercourse between God and human. When I first read that, I thought that was kind of strange until I come to realize that's exactly right. God has created us for himself. God has created us and gave, gave us all of these desires, whether eating and drinking or having sex. And all of these things are wonderful gifts that God has given. But the ultimate purpose of these gifts was for our prospering, but our prospering could not occur unless and until we connect all of these things with God and to God as the ultimate pointer and sign of true joy in life. So here, these guild meetings often took place in heathen temples, and so drinks offered to these gods and meals that were offered would be comprised of meats offered to idols. And eating meat was a rare and special occasion. So you go to these guild meetings and you taste some things that are, I don't know, maybe caviar. I don't know if you have everyday caviar or lox bagels or something that, you know, I moved to New York City after graduation. I was like, what is lox bagel? And it was, okay, that seemed pretty, and it was so expensive. And what are caviar? So in the early, the first century context, there are certain food items that you don't get to have a lot unless you went to these guild meetings and these guild meetings that were held in heathen temples and these foods that had already been offered to pagan gods. And so you can see why that was a real kind of problem. In fact, if you're a kind of student of the Bible, you will realize that in the book of Acts chapter 15, in the very first council, church council in Jerusalem, do you know what they talked about? They talked about this very thing, what to eat and what not to eat. And how do we behave toward and how, how do we think about things that were offered to these idols or pagan gods. In fact, it says in chapter 15 of Acts, verse 29, it was written to the churches in Syria and Antioch and Cilicia. This is what it says. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Let me actually make the connection between the Old Testament and the early Christian church. Do you realize that if you read through the Old Testament, there are lots and lots of what? Dietary restrictions and guide, guidelines, right? What to eat and what not to eat, why you shouldn't eat lobsters or shrimps, and why you should actually avoid pork, and all of these things are there. And you might have found that, like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. But one thing that it is doing is, actually, it is kind of giving us this kind of regulatory perspectives that would kind of point us to the ultimate giver of our desires, so these restrictions, they were much more modified. And this is, you have a much more reduced version here in the book of Acts chapters 15. But was this kind of matter, this controversy, was this settled by sending this letter to these three churches? No. That controversy continued to rage because eating and drinking certain foods and, 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 and things caused a lot of confusion. So when Paul began his ministry, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, and he began to write these letters, one church that received such a letter is a church in Corinth. And in the, in the first letter that was sent to the church in Corinth in chapter 8, this is what Paul had to say. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge pops up while love builds up. So then about eating, and food, eating food and sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. 
But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. Therefore, their conscience is weak and it is defiled. And so this is how Paul concludes it. He says, you know what? I realize that my eating and drinking and my entire being is to build up the body of Christ. He says, you know, I live my life so as to build you up. I live my life so as to serve this world, and in doing so, there's a beautiful reciprocity. Think of it like this. My job is to serve you, and your job is to serve me. Then there's a beautiful mutuality and reciprocity that will actually encourage us to to further deepen our neighborly love. I'm not here to acquire and conquer things from me, myself, and I alone all the time. That my role is to serve you and your role role is to serve somebody else. That we go outside of ourselves and to serve somebody other than ourselves. And in doing so, we get to see the heart of God. The God who who is from all things, from eternity past, became one of us. And who was the Lord of all things, became a servant, who suffered himself unto death and served us unto that crucifixion. And that's the beautiful language that we see in Philippians. Therefore, I dare to say that there's a major perspectival shift in the way that early Christians saw their identity as following Jesus, who, though the Lord of all, became the servant of all. That they began to see their sexual ethics and dietary regulations and their professional aspirations as the way of saving and serving this world, not merely acquiring things for myself. So this is a major deal, and so this is what he says. The matter was to eat or not to eat. And the problem these Thyatira and Christians faced, so in order to sort of make a living, you had to belong to these guilds, but to attend these guild meetings was to become in some ways involved or pressure to become involved with the worship of these idols. That there is this, and the pressure points about sexuality, what it is that I do. There's a temple worship. So one of the, you might know uh, the goddess Aphrodite from whose name we get words like aphrodisiac and all of that. So there was a goddess named Aphrodite and you actually, as part of your worship, there are these women who are serving as temple um, sex workers or prostitutes. And in order to really experience that worship of Aphrodite, what you were actually encouraged to do and made obligatory as part of your worship was to have sex with these human sex maids. And in doing so, you're actually deepening, but you're actually basically objectifying these women, and they were no more than dehumanized objects of my desire. You're just there to serve my desire. I'm just going to do it, and that's who I'm going to do. And so that was the sort of a, a certainly local, if not prevalent context of many pressure points for first century Christians. That there is a, and so legalization of prostitution was a, a part and parcel of Roman Empire's attitude towards sex. And these Christians are finding themselves, hmm, how do I live into this? And it was a, and all these Christians in Thyatira were born not as Christians, but as pagans. And their perspective on life, especially sexuality, had to go through a major conversion as well. So what about today? This is a part that I dread talking about in a way. But at the same time, I think, you know, there is a real kind of dehumanization and objectification of the human person as part of our sexual kind of desires and activities, right? So my family and I lived on uh, Vanderbilt campus for seven years uh, as a faculty in residence. 
And, you know, I learned a lot of things from my students. And, and one, one time, and the student told me, like, oh, there's an app called whatever. And actually, it's a pardon the crudity. This is where the rated R part gets in. But I think it really helped us to get what we are facing. So there's an app that actually is a hookup ad, and you actually slide to the right or to the left, and that's how you kind of, and I was actually blown away that with the advent of further breakthroughs in technology, what we are doing is not actually seeing people as the image bearers of God, but merely as objects of my desire. And we can multiply. I mean, in our city of Nashville, there's issues of human trafficking. And so we can see that this whole objectification and dehumanization of somebody else as my kind of someone to conquer in my sexual, you know, kind of pursuit is not just localized in Thyatira, but also here in Nashville, Tennessee, in the 21st century context. So then what? What do we do? And this is the end part of our message. We need to actually listen to the words of Jesus Christ here. Severe mercy, he says, you know, and, and notice that he, uh, the letter says, you know, I gave Jezebel an opportunity to repent. And the followers of Jezebel an opportunity to, to say, you know what, I am broken, I am hopeless on my own, so I'm coming to you. And to me, that is the beauty of the gospel. See, sex, sexual activity is a deepening of our communion with one another. That when you have sex, there is a, it's not merely just bodies hugging and, and getting close to each other. It also creates, within the context that God desires, in that act of lovemaking, you're deepening your communion with one another and commitment to each other. But in doing so, according to Judaism and Christianity, this is a window that kind of opens our eyes onto the desire that God has for us, that we are made for communion with God. Think about that, that you, all of your desires and appetites are really real appetites and desires, but they were also pointers to the ultimate desire and ultimate appetite fulfiller named the triune God. We have writers from Teresa of Avila to C.S. Lewis and Augustine and numerous others that talk about that, that you know what, you're created for God, and all of your desires will not find them to be ultimate and deeply satisfying unless you connect them with God. And that is the pr problem of Thyatira and Christianity regarding sexuality as it is for us as well. So the gospel call is come to this Christ. Yes, Jesus says, you know what, I will actually have these children uh, be struck dead. But remember, the person who is writing these words is the one who was struck dead on our behalf. You see, it is much easier for us to talk about Jesus who died for me. But now think about it like this. Jesus was executed for me. He actually received death sentence from a state and big empire, and he died as a state criminal. Received death sentence, and he died. I mean, think about it. The, the, the Roman governor says, get this guy killed. I mean, think about death sentence in our country. Think about death sentencing in our world. He received death sentence. Jesus, the Son of God, he says, you know what? The followers of Jezebel, unless they repent, they will be struck dead. He's the very one who was actually, actually executed as a state criminal. You see, the best way to connect the, the cross of Jesus Christ is not electric chair. It is lynching. Yes, think about lynching. Think about the bodies that were hanging on these trees in our nation's history. You see what the Roman government was doing was, you know what, if you mess with our government, this is what's going to happen to you. 
You're going to be hanging on this cursed tree as Galatians talks about it. And you're going to be an object of curse and ridicule. And that's what Jesus endured. And in our nation's journey so far, we need to realize, you know what? Jesus endured that public shame to make us whole, to redirect our desires and say, you know what? Come to me. I am the one whose body was broken, but also he fully embraced our creaturely frailty. He knows what it means to be human. And I am always amazed at what this writer of Hebrews says, that he faced all kinds of temptations and yet without sin. So that means, since he lived as a life as a Jewish male, he knows what it means to be sexually tempted. And I don't know about you, but that provides me with some real encouragement. I have a God who understands the real temptations of all of these things that we face. I was sharing this with a couple of friends after the first service that, you know, if we were to surrender all of our cell phones as we enter this sanctuary and all that we've seen on our cell phones, let alone our computer screens, would be shot on the screen right here, would that be a way to encourage church attendance or would that drop church attendance by 99%? I don't know about you. I think it's the latter. But that's exactly what it is. We come to this omniscient lover of our soul and body. God knows everything about us, everything about me, everything, all the wayward thoughts and acts, and God calls us in Jesus Christ, come to this table, because only as you come to me, in your act of coming to me, which itself is empowered by the Spirit of God, as you come to me, you'll find wholeness. And it's a journey toward and progression toward wholeness, but you're already declared to be whole. You are all right, because I lay down my life for you. I face all kinds of temptations, and yet without fail. So let's come to this perfect man and perfect God, Jesus Christ, in whom and in whom only we find our wholeness, whether it is about eating and drinking or having sex in our journey toward the eternal city of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you are who you say you are, that you are everlasting, ever-loving, and in your severe mercy, you spoke these words of truth to the church in Thyatira. So, Lord, we desire to come to you in our brokenness, in our recognition of our failures, whether we are in elementary school or middle school or high school or college or retired. Our stories are broken. Our stories are frail. Our determinations fall short. Our desires to follow you become nonsense if we're really honest. And yet you call us unto yourself. So here we come. Not because we're perfect, far from it, but because you're perfect and your promise is true. In our crippled efforts to follow you, we desire that your spirit will lift us. And in our physical, coming of, uh, physical act of coming to the table, connect us with the risen Christ so that we eat and drink unto your joy and unto our salvation. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.